Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word together this morning, Lord, we do so with joy. We come to your word joyfully because you have given it to us for our good. We come joyfully, Lord, because we know that all of the requirements that you have laid out for your people are met in Christ. We come joyfully, Lord, because this is your revelation of yourself to us and not a book of instruction that burdens us and condemns us. And so, Lord, today, I pray that we would be joyful. There is much in the world, Lord, to rob us of joy. There are things that are happening, Father, that could very easily cause us to set our minds and our hearts upon the things of the world and lose hope. There are things to lament. There are griefs and sorrows. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all of those things, we have joy because Christ is ours. He is our hope in life and death. Lord, we pray that you would do justice. That, Lord, you would show forth your righteousness in the things that are taking place in this world. Lord, we are taught in the scriptures that it is good and right for us to pray that the plans and machinations of wicked men would fall. It is good and right for us to pray that those who are evil would face your wrath and justice. It is good for us to pray things like, Lord, please break the teeth of the wicked. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just that. Those who seek to do harm, those who seek to abuse and terrorize, Lord, we pray that you would stamp those things out. Lord, we pray for peace in Israel. Lord, your word calls us to love the Israelites, to love the Jews, because they are the root of the plant that you have grafted us into as Gentiles. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rightly understand and love the Jewish people. Lord, we pray that you would stop those who are wicked. But, Lord, we pray more than anything that salvation in Christ would come upon that land, that Israelite and Arab alike would know and believe that Christ is Lord and be saved. Lord, as we come to your word together this morning, I pray that you would impress these things upon our hearts, that we would rightly understand, that we would rightly divide and that Christ would reign in our hearts. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. We return today to our series through the book of Exodus. We left off a few months ago 
with the people of Israel being utterly terrified after receiving the Ten Commandments. We're told in Scripture that the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments to the entire gathered nation of Israel there at Mount Sinai, and that He did so through thunder and lightning. The mountain trembled and shook. It was an awful scene. And after the Lord spoke those Ten Commandments or those Ten Words... Israel told Moses, if this goes on, we will surely die. Therefore, Moses, you go and speak to the Lord and don't let him talk to us any longer. Because this is too scary. They wanted Moses to act as a mediator between them and God. And we talked about how Moses was a type of Christ who stands as the perfect and ultimate mediator between God and men. And before we moved into the back half of the book of Exodus, which is filled with laws and regulations, we moved through Paul's letter to the Galatians in order to establish how we are to consider the Mosaic law as a new covenant Christian. It is important for us to understand that the laws that we are going to look at today are no longer binding upon us. Paul made that abundantly clear in the book of Galatians. It is those who respond to God by faith in Jesus Christ, not those who submit to the law, who are justified before God. Our sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different than my usual sermon. Usually I I do just kind of a a walkthrough of the text and I explain as we go and I apply as we go. This morning is going to be a little bit different. That is not because the laws that we find here are not important or worth considering, because they are. These things are important, they are worth considering. But the reason why we're going to do it this way is that understanding the categories that these laws fall into is what is necessary for us as Christians to understand God's purposes for the law. Because these things are no longer binding... I don't need to stand in the pulpit and say, God says, do this with your slaves, because that's not relevant to us. However, the Lord's purposes in giving these laws are relevant to us. And that's what our sermon is primarily intending to address this morning. Why these laws? Because throughout the Mosaic law, which extends beyond what we're going to look at today, there are things that seem odd or might even appear to be morally repugnant, according to our modern standards. And it has become standard practice for those who reject the faith to point to Old Testament laws as though they are some sort of gotcha that proves that God is somehow immoral or unjust. There are laws in the Old Testament that require a man who has raped a woman to take her as a wife. And people who are who are not Christians, point to that and say, isn't that horrible? Isn't that that immoral? Isn't that unjust? Well, when you understand why that law was given in the proper context, you recognize that it is just. It is a righteous God protecting a vulnerable person in the midst of something horrific that has happened to them. I have seen some some professing Christians become almost apologetic for the Old Testament law. They kind of act as though the Lord was wrong 
in giving some of the law. That God somehow grew up and matured from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that now he's a a better God, a kinder God. You may have even heard some Christians say, oh, that's the Old Testament God. I worship the New Testament God. Brothers and sisters, there is no Old Testament, New Testament God. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if you have that distinction in your mind, although that's Old Testament God versus New Testament God, set that aside. Because that is not a proper understanding of the Lord. That is heresy. And so as we consider these things this morning, my hope is that we can properly understand the context in which these things are given and rightly understand them for our new covenant context. And so this morning, before I even read a word out of the Bible, I want to begin with our first point, with a consideration of the threefold division. You'll see we have three points this morning. That's our first one, the threefold division. Historically, Christians have understood the Mosaic Law to have three sections. This is a doctrine known as the threefold division, or you may have heard it called the tripartite division. And the three sections that we find in the Old Testament law are the moral law, the civil or judicial law, and the ceremonial law. So a few months ago, as we worked our way one by one through the Ten Commandments, I repeatedly emphasized to us that the Ten Commandments in reality, are the expressions of God's moral nature. And as such, they are binding upon us in our understanding of morality. The Ten Commandments are set apart from the rest of the law, and they are binding upon us because they are expressions of God's morality. The moral law can only change when God changes. And in case you're unaware, God does not change. Thus, The moral law also does not change. Further, we talked about how the moral law is actually written upon our hearts. It is something that is impressed upon us in creation. In Romans 2, 14 through 16, Paul writes this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All of us are born with a sort of inborn morality. If you have raised children, you know that you do not have to teach them what is wrong. They just do it. But they also know in a certain sense, that it is wrong because they hide it. When they do things that are wrong, even before my son understood really the differentiation between right and wrong and yes and no, when he would do something wrong and I would say, James, did you just do that? No. That was his gut level response because it's written upon our hearts. This Inborn morality is a part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. To be made in his image means that this is written upon our hearts. We intrinsically know right and wrong. But bear in mind that even this is tainted by sin and that humanity, as Paul says, by our unrighteousness, suppresses the truth. 
We do not do what is right, even though we know what is right. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the morality of the moral law, the morality of God's nature, is shown in our creation. We can further see that the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's morality by considering the fall of mankind in the garden. Here's what I mean. The first commandment was broken in the eating of the fruit because Adam was unbelieving and self-seeking. The second commandment was broken because he tolerated false religion coming from the serpent. The third was broken because Adam did not reverently uphold God's words. The fourth was broken because his violation kept him from entering his eternal Sabbath rest. The fifth was broken because Adam dishonored God his father. The sixth was broken because he caused the curse of death to fall upon himself and his wife and all those who would come after him. The seventh was broken because he did not protect his marriage from harm and was spiritually adulterous toward God. The eighth was broken because he permitted his wife to steal the fruit. The ninth was broken when he failed to speak the truth about God when God's goodness was questioned. And the tenth was broken when he coveted the fruit. All of the Ten Commandments are seen, expressed, before the Ten Commandments are even given to Israel. And we see them and others coming under the judgment of God because of their violations of this moral law found in the Ten Commandments. The sinfulness of mankind has always been evident from the very beginning because this morality is written upon our hearts. And so all of that to say, again, as I said before, the Ten Commandments are a different expression of God's law than the rest of the Mosaic law and are thus set apart. We see this in how they are given. The Ten Commandments were spoken audibly by God to the entire people of Israel there at the mountain, showing us the special significance of these particular commands. And we haven't gotten here yet. This is a little bit of a spoiler. But we also see this in how those ten words are maintained. They are written by what Moses says is the finger of God onto tablets of stone. And those tablets of stone are later kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. Showing us the permanent nature of these particular commands. So that's the moral law. That's the first of the threefold division, the moral law, which is forever and permanently binding upon all of humanity. The other laws, the civil and the ceremonial, are what we would call positive laws. Now, this is not positive in the sense of like good versus bad, but these are laws that are posited by God, given by God. They are laws that God adds out of his own free will that aren't inherently good or evil and tied to a particular specific covenant. That was said by a pastor and a professor named John English Lee. For example, consider the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were given a positive law to not eat from one particular tree. The moral law was written upon their hearts, but they were given, one, they were given a positive law that said, don't eat from this tree. This is a law that served a particular purpose for a particular period. It served a purpose there in the garden. But this law is no longer binding. It no longer applies. There is not a tree out there that you might accidentally come across and say, ooh, the fruit looks good, and take a bite and find yourself extra condemned. 
because you didn't follow the law to not eat from this tree. That is a positive command that served a specific purpose for a particular time and now is no longer binding. It no longer exists. We can also, we can also consider the commands for the church to be positive law. For example, the concept of how to utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a worship gathering was not necessary under the Old Covenant. You will not look in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, in the law, and find God saying, hey, listen, if somebody has the spirit of prophecy in a worship gathering, this is how you manage that. Because those things were not relevant as they are in the church. Do you see what I'm saying? These ideas of positive laws are laws that can come and can go because they are for a specific, particular thing. This is why Paul speaks of the law the way that he does in the book of Galatians, because the Mosaic law is a positive law, something that was given for a particular purpose for a particular time. In the case of the, the Mosaic law was to, number one, establish a nation through which the Messiah would come. That's one. And two, to show forth the condemnation of all mankind due to sin. That's the one that Paul emphasizes heavily in Galatians, where he talks about how the law condemns us and the law is a tutor or a servant that brings us to Jesus. He focuses heavily on that second aspect. But the first aspect of the Mosaic law in a positive sense is to establish and give boundaries to a particular nation through which the Messiah would come. So considering the threefold division moral, civil, ceremonial, we can see this really clearly just by considering the text of the book of Exodus. So we see the Ten Commandments, they're set apart, given in a particular way, and then after those Ten Commandments, the Israelites say, don't let God talk to us anymore. And so we're told that Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with the Lord. So they are given, and then there's a separation there. Then we find the civil law in the passage that we are considering today. And then there's some other stuff that takes place. Discussion of a covenant, things of that nature. And then we come back again into the law where we find the ceremonial laws where they are dealing with things of the tabernacle and how they are to worship and things of that nature. So the text of Exodus lays out for us a threefold division of the law because it's divided within the text of Exodus. If, it, if there was no threefold division, I would argue that the text of Exodus would start with the first commandment and then just continue giving the law. But it doesn't do that because the Lord wants us to see that division. Bear in mind, however, there is some overlap that we must consider. Not every civil law is only civil. Not every moral law is only moral. For example, the fourth commandment contains both moral law, set aside a day for worshiping the Lord, and ceremonial law, set aside Saturday. That part is ceremonial, and here's why I say that. The New Testament usage of Sabbath makes clear to us that the day of the week is transferable based upon the work of the Lord. Because the weekly earthly day of rest is pointing toward a heavenly reality of eternal rest. That's the true Sabbath. 
The true Sabbath is eternal rest. The earthly one is a shadow. And so to put it like this, the Lord rested on the seventh day when he created all things. But Christ completed the work in establishing a new creation when he rose on the first day of the week. Christ's work was finished when he rose on Sunday. God's work was finished when he rested on Saturday. That is why Christians believe that the Sabbath command still exists, but has transferred from Saturday over to Sunday. Now, why does all of this matter? Because I realize that for some of us, these things are just a lot of theological considerations without any practical application. But we need to recognize that the way we understand the law of God greatly impacts how we understand ethics, how we order our lives in churches, and how we truly live free under Christ. There are entire denominations of people who believe that they are Christians, but according to Paul, they are accursed because they have a faulty understanding of the law and seek to, to, seek to bind faith and works together. Understanding the threefold division helps us to rightly understand the book of Galatians and how we can find that divide. A proper understanding of the divisions of the Mosaic law helped us to ward off those heretical beliefs that seek to sever us from Jesus. And so that leads us into our second point, the purpose of the civil law. The purpose of the civil law. So if all those things are true, what should we make of the civil law? Should we just ignore it? Should we just skip over it because it's no longer relevant? It's no longer necessary? Or should we go the opposite direction? Should we say, this is how God wants countries and nations to conduct themselves, so we should take the civil law and apply it to our own government? This is how the government should govern. No. Both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. We should not ignore these things, but we should also not consider these things as the gold standard for how to righteously govern. Because when we think about the laws that the Lord has given to Israel, we need to consider a few different things. First thing is this. We must remember the unique role of Israel as a theological nation state that images God to the world. We must understand the purpose and function of Israel. The laws that the Lord gives to them serve to set them apart as different from the world around them. That's why we find laws that govern things like slavery and sorcery, because these were prominent cultural elements in that time period. These were things that were actively taking place. And the Lord specifies this for them and for us in Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He sets out for Israel and says, this is how the pagan nations treat sojourners. They make them slaves. You treat sojourners differently. So that's the first consideration, is that these laws were given for the unique role of Israel. The second thing we must remember is that the time period when Israel grew from a family, albeit a big one, to a nation existed entirely within the context of slavery in Egypt. 
They went from being a family to a nation of millions while they were slaves. These were a people who had no concept of nation building or societal construction outside of what they had observed in Egypt. And so the civil law served to organize and instruct the Israelites on how to be a nation rather than just a massive group of people without, without, any, kind of, without any kind of structure or order. This was the Lord helping people who did not know how to be a nation be a nation. The third thing we need to remember is that the civil law establishes a judicial framework that grows out of the moral law and gives application of God's morality to their society. In other words, there are some things that God allows not because they are morally right, but because there is an allowance for the hardness of human hearts. We know this to be true because we see it in the New Testament. In Matthew 19, it says this, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I'm going to pause here for a second. So they asked Jesus a question about morality. And Jesus gives them an answer, morally speaking, from God's word. And they respond by misappropriating the law of God. Notice what they say. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? They have taken something and made it into a command. God said, if you don't like your marriage, give her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. They have taken the law and divorced it from morality and taken an allowance as a command. And we know this because of what Jesus says back. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The Lord, in establishing Israel, knew something that, we, that he makes explicit in Romans 2. That not every person in Israel is the true Israel. Not everyone who is circumcised of the flesh is a true child of the promise. Only those who are circumcised of the heart. And thus, the civil law gives allowance for those who are wicked to restrain their wickedness. Because essentially, what would have happened was that men who wanted to divorce their wives but had no legal outlet to do so would have resorted to horrifically illegal things. They would have refused to feed this, this wife. They would have starved her to death. They would have killed her themselves. They would have done all manner of injustice and wickedness to get themselves out of a situation that they didn't want to be in. 
So the Lord said, because of the hardness of your heart, I will create a system of divorce, even though when you divorce and marry another, when you divorce for unjust, unrighteous reasons and marry another, you are committing sexual immorality. To divorce and remarry is to break the seventh commandment. But they don't care about that. Do you understand? And that leads into our next consideration for the law. The civil law serves as a safety net to protect the weak and vulnerable from the effects of sinfulness. So like I said, in the case of divorce, God allows it because of man's sinfulness, but he places guidelines that enforce the proper treatment of women in the midst of divorce. Where in other cultures, a divorced woman has no options other than to become a slave, usually a sex slave, the Lord gives other avenues for protection within the law as an outflow of his righteousness. So all that to say, we can certainly take the principles of justice from the law. That's what Paul did. Paul, in a discussion about paying pastors, quotes, do not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Every seminary professor I have ever had, if I turned in a paper that applied that in the way Paul did, would have given me a big F. Because they're like, that's not what that means. But Paul is taking a principle of justice as one commentator put it, why do you think the Lord wrote that law? Oxen can't read. The ox can't go and say, hey, uh, this guy's muzzling me while I tread out the grain in violation of the law. The point there is the principle of justice. And so Paul uses that and says, pay your pastors. Give to those who are working. He takes the principle of justice and applies it instead of saying, Hey, make sure you don't muzzle your ox while he treads out the grain to the letter of the law. So it's good for us to take principles of justice, but it would be inappropriate to say these are the perfect ways that we should structure our society. And so our third point this morning is seven categories. Seven categories that we find here in our text from Exodus 20, verse 22, all the way through verse 19 of chapter 23. We're not going to read through all of that. Don't panic. But I want to read the first section just to illustrate what I mean here. So this is immediately after the people were standing far off and Moses draws near to the Lord. And then we find this in Exodus 20, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you well, if a wielder tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So the first category that we find here is we find laws about worship. All of the nations surrounding Israel, the nation they had just come out of, 
And all the nations that would be around them when they settled into the promised land were pagan nations with pagan worship practices. They all worshiped idols, and their idols were made of either solid precious metals, silver or gold, or they were made out of fine wood with gold or silver pressed onto them. So they were all very extravagant and expensive. Well, the Lord has already told them to not make any idols. But here again, he repeats himself because he is emphasizing you are not to worship in those ways. You are to worship in the way that I command because you are to be different. And so these are regulations that are avoiding pagan worship practices. He says, don't make idols, even if they're made of precious metals. You might think to yourself, this is really nice though. It's really expensive and shiny. Surely the Lord would love to have this fancy idol alongside him in the tabernacle, right? No. The Lord also tells them to not make elaborate altars. That that was a a thing that pagans did. They made these really elaborate altars. They would take these very large and expensive stones and they would have craftsmen craft altars out of these big, heavy, very expensive stones. And that's where they would do their worshiping. And the Lord says, you don't need any of that. You should worship on an altar made out of dirt or rough-hewn stone, stone that you just find a certain way and you make an altar out of it. You know why? Because those are things that God made. Those are not things that men made. Those are things that God made. And then he says something that's a little bit odd to us. He says there in 26, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. It's a little strange, right? I go up steps to come and preach. My nakedness is not exposed. So what does he mean here? Well, one of the hallmarks of pagan worship practices was sexual immorality. They would do all of these things in the nude. They would dance around in the nude. They would commit sexual immorality with one another as part of their worship. And so these were men, and these were men in particular who lived in a society where they wore what amounted to a dress. And so the Lord says, don't even accidentally expose your nakedness. In going up a step, you might step too high and expose something. Don't even accidentally do that. Don't go up by steps to my altar. Don't go to the high place. Stay on the ground that I made with an altar of stones that I made. And don't expose your nakedness. Do not worship like the pagans. The next section that we find in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21 are laws about slavery. Laws about slavery. Again, this is one of those things that people point to as morally reprehensible, but we have to understand this is not man-stealing, which is an abominable practice that is condemned by the Lord. The Lord says anyone who steals a man to make him a slave shall be put to death. And anyone who is in possession of a man who has been stolen to be made a slave shall also be put to death. This is more like contractual labor. These are people who are poor, who cannot provide for themselves. And so they go to someone who is wealthier and they say, I need to provide for my family I will agree to work for you for this length of time, for this much money and grain or whatever it may be. 
And they come into an agreement together. And so the Lord is regulating what that looks like. The Lord is saying you can't trick people into working for you as slaves forever. You can't snatch people off the street and say, you're my slave now. The Lord is saying this is something that is going to take place because of the wickedness of mankind. It shouldn't, right? We should give charitably to those who are in need so that slavery is not necessary. But the Lord, again, knows that these things will take place. So he is regulating them for the sake of justice. And then there's the case of the daughter in verse 7 and following. I'm going to read that. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So this, on, the, on its face, is a little bit iffy, right? Well, again, consider the culture. Women were typically not educated. They typically were not able to work on their own outside of the home. They were particularly vulnerable. And so the Lord, the way that he protected women was through marriage. Well, culturally speaking, there was an exchange of money or livestock or goods of some kind in order to have your daughter married into another family. Well, for poor families who had daughters who couldn't pay those sorts of things, their recourse for protecting their daughters was to sell them as essentially secondary wives to a man. So don't think of this as like sex slavery, okay? This is more like contractual marriage. Again, the Lord specifies one husband of one wife, but here he's making provisions for second and third marriages because the alternative is that these women would end up as prostitutes. These women would end up being abused and violated for the entirety of their lives. And so the Lord is trying to protect them. And even in this system, he is setting up things to guard them. If she doesn't please her master, then you shall let her be redeemed. Someone in her family, a kinsman redeemer, can buy her. He can't just turn her out on the street. That's not permissible. Because what's she going to do? And so he has to allow for someone to take her in. He cannot sell her to another nation. That would be abominable. He must deal with her as a daughter. And if he takes, in, he takes another wife, he has to still provide for her in the same ways. Do you see what I'm saying here? The Lord is making provisions in the midst of things that are morally not okay to make sure that righteousness and justice are upheld among his people. This is not something that the Lord necessarily approves of, but he's regulating it for their good. And that's why he says in verse 11, if he doesn't do those things for her, if he doesn't take care of her, she can go out on her own. No one has to buy her. No one has to redeem her. She can just leave. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. She is then free. Her dad doesn't have to repay the money that he got. She's done. 
because he broke God's law. The next section, verses 12 through 32, are laws about violence. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, condemn murder. Murder is not permissible. But what do we do with those who kill? Just because it's against the moral law doesn't mean people won't do it. What about people who kill accidentally? That's what these laws regulate. It's one thing to say you shall not murder, but you have to ensure justice in the case that this command is broken. And so this section gives all sorts of things to look at that gives us kind of judicial case studies for what they should do. So for example, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. That's, that's bad, right? You violate the fifth commandment, you're going to be put to death. But look at verses 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So if you commit murder, you're going to be killed. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So the Lord says, essentially, if you make plans to kill someone, your sentence is death. But if it's a crime of passion in the heat of the moment, you have a place that you can go to. But if it's revealed that this was planned, you can go into the city of refuge and take him away. You could go into the temple and take him away from the altar if necessary and put him to death. Again, regulating things for the sake of the good of his people. He even says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The Lord makes provision for all sorts of things in his law. The next section that we find in 2133 through 2215 is we see laws about property. These laws regulate how the Israelites are supposed to handle circumstances where someone causes the loss of livelihood. If someone accidentally burns down your, your crops, what happens then? If the Lord did not give regulations about these things, things will quickly devolve into brutal anarchy as people take matters into their own hands. Well, that guy burned down my house, so we're going to move into his house and throw his family in the street. That's what's right, isn't it? Left to our own devices, we come up with our own morality and righteousness. And the Lord is attempting to rein those things in because of the hardness of human hearts. The next section, 2216 through 239, are laws about society. These are assorted laws about a variety of things that may take place among them. What if a person practices witchcraft? What do we do then? What if someone sacrifices to a foreign god? How do we deal with money lending? What are the regulations about interest and debt? How do we handle those things? Again, all things that the Lord is regulating for the good of his people. And the last section of our text today, 23, 10 through 19, are all laws about devotion to God. 
It says, for six years, this is 23 verse 10, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So all of these are laws that have to do with regulating the day-to-day, year-to-year life of the Israelites. They are to structure their lives around a six-year cycle of working their fields, a six-day cycle of work, and not just for themselves, but for their animals, for their servants. Again, imposing righteousness through the regulation of society. They are to structure their year around these three different feasts, one in the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. And the the purpose of these feasts is thankfulness to the Lord. It's, It's a constant reminder to them of the fact that it is the Lord who sustains them and cares for them. All of these things within the civil law are given to us how we are to live unto God how they are to live unto God in their everyday lives. That's the purpose of this. And obviously the judicial law, the civil law cannot be exhaustive. God can't cover every single thing. But the purpose of this is for those who would judge over the people to be able to look to the civil law and study it and know it so they can make judgments. There are cases that we find in scripture that are not covered in the law. Like the time that Israel was under siege and a woman comes to the king and says, King, my neighbor came to me and said, Hey, if we eat your baby today, we'll eat my baby tomorrow. Well, we ate my baby yesterday and when today came, she's hidden her baby. The Lord did not make provision for how to handle that case in his law. But he has given enough of a window into his righteous judgment that men can make those judgments. That is how we too should consider the Mosaic law as an image of God's judgment and righteousness and perfection. His care for our people. When we think about these things, when we read these things, our first thought should be, thank you, Lord, that Christ has fulfilled this on our behalf. Thank you for that. Because the law is a heavy burden that leads to condemnation. But Christ has perfectly done it for us. But we can also find principles of justice and fairness within the law, so long as we approach these things with the proper framework in mind. 
And as we consider the law, it should remind us that the Lord is just. Because he has laid out this framework for us plainly in the text, showing us the division of the law for our good. And so our response to these things is that we throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Because we cannot hope to fulfill these obligations. We should read the law of the Lord lovingly, seeing his love and caring for his people, and especially in shepherding us toward Christ. And if you're here with us today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to think of these things as indicators of your unrighteousness and repent and believe the gospel that Christ died to set you free from your sin and the burden of the law that you might live forever with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages like this that can be hard for us to understand, can be hard for us to apply, and yet, Lord, you have given them to us for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would apply these things to our hearts. Help us to recognize your goodness and your justice and your mercy in giving us the law that you have reigned in the wickedness of men to protect the weak and the vulnerable, to safeguard righteousness among your true people. I pray, Lord, that we would rest in the completed obedience of Jesus and that if there are any here among us today who don't know him, that they would repent and believe the gospel, that they would be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.